You're listening to a great podcast, Do Politics Better, with the boy wonder, Neil Emman. <laughs> It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. You've heard of the Friday news dump, but this Monday we had a ton of news out of the governor's office. The governor waited until his 10th day to make a decision about the budget and a lot of other bills that he took action on. That's right. The governor decided to sign the budget, which I think was surprising to some people, but the budget had some pretty strong bipartisan numbers, so it wasn't that surprising. But the governor did say that he thought vetoing the budget would be counterproductive to their Medicaid talks. All indications are there are some back-channel negotiations going on between the Senate, the House, and the governor's office. Not sure what a timeline is like, like when we'll see a deal come out from behind closed doors. But Representative Jason Sane, House senior budget writer, indicated that talks are progressing. The governor also said, I believe on Wednesday, that he thought they would have a deal in the next week. Do you think that means we see something or? No. Yeah. I'm not sure, you know. Been talking to legislators a lot since they adjourned. I get the sense that a lot of legislators are just chilling right now, trying to spend time with family, maybe catching up on their day jobs. Let's talk about some of the other bills he took action on on Monday. You know, he let the reg reform bill become law, he didn't sign it didn't veto it. It just became law. And he registered some of his reservations about that bill upon letting it become law. So his statement specifically said that he was going to let it become law because of a specific provision that involves confessions of judgment. And he thought that was unfair to consumers. We saw some folks at the General Assembly in the last days really lobbying against that provision in reg reform. We did see a few vetoes this week. One, we expected. Two, we did not expect. He vetoed the ICE detainer bill. Totally expected that. We've covered that in past podcasts. We won't go into it. And he's vetoed it in past sessions. So kind of knew it was coming. He also vetoed Senate Bill 593, which is titled Schools for the Deaf and Blind. My understanding is it takes the governance out from under the State Board of Education. He says it's unconstitutional. On the other side of the argument, you've got Department of Public Instruction Superintendent Catherine Truitt saying that the bill is needed and she's calling for a veto override in the upcoming July 26th session. I thought that was a little surprising that the state superintendent sent a letter to the House and Senate leadership because I can't recall her getting involved in other veto sort of issues, but this is something that I guess would be in her wheelhouse, so not out of the realm. You know, when we had her on the podcast earlier in the year, she talked about kind of this thin line that she had to walk between being partners with the State Board of Education, 
being the state superintendent, the state board of education, being somewhat an extension of the governor, she is clearly laying down a marker here that she disagrees with the state board of education. I agree with you. A bold move, a move we haven't seen from her. Furthering our veto coverage is House Bill 49, and this was a bill about concealed carry. When your permit lapses, it allowed another 180 days to renew your permit without having to do the training again. But then we had another veto, really caught us by surprise. Yeah, this was House Bill 823, Child Advocacy Center Share Information. And he vetoed this bill, which seemed to be at the request of DHHS. I know this bill was being worked on the last day of session. It got stuck in the middle of the Senate leaving early. We talked about this last week. They were trying to make a fix in the conference report. So the Senate leaves earlier that morning. And then I think the House Representative Jason Sane felt like he had to make a motion to concur get it on the books. I think the idea was come back in another session and fix it, but clearly the governor wasn't having it. He vetoed it really on technical reasons, and I believe you're right. HHS requested this. Out of the governor's office on Monday as well, he announced that we will end our state of emergency on August 15th. In case you didn't know, we're still in a state of emergency. Big, big news this week. CNBC, big announcement. Governor is at the Oceana Pier at Wrightsville Beach, and we hear the news. That North Carolina was named the number one state for business. I have to just note here, Brian was watching the governor's interview on Wednesday morning, and I walked into the office and I said, when was that filmed? And he said, I don't know, but I'm looking at the surf. It looks amazing. (laughs) They were over on the south end of Wrightsville Beach, which is a great surf spot. And apparently yesterday, the waves were just pumping. I saw about a dozen surfers in the background trying to get into some barrels. It was fun. And it was a great interview. The governor talked a lot about how bipartisanship got us to number one. And this has to do with the recruitment that's come to North Carolina, the business environment. Yesterday, as it went over onto Twitter, it didn't feel very bipartisan. And who was taking credit for the state being number one? So true. I was scrolling Twitter yesterday and you saw Republicans saying it was their policies. You saw Democrats saying it was because they broke the supermajority that we don't have more social issues. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a wonderful partisan, bipartisan moment. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the bottom line, North Carolina. Congratulations. After years and years of being number two, or at least in the top five, we finally got to number one. How we got here, notwithstanding. We Started from the bottom, now we're here. We're here. Let's all celebrate together. This is a do politics better moment. We're number one. Also, if you live on Twitter, you will see this week there is an article floating around that came from Politico saying that Wake County is ground zero for the 2022 U.S. Senate battle. They pointed out that unaffiliated voters make up 41% of the electorate. 36% are Democrats, 23% Republicans. What are those unaffiliated voters going to do in the Senate race? Now, Biden was a factor 
also in this article. Biden won Wake County with 62% of the vote, but the Senate race itself is leaning Republican. One of the folks that was quoted in the article said that you should think of Wake County as a donut, that center is very, very blue, but the surrounding area is really red. So with a high-profile Senate race comes a lot of fundraising, and we heard some news this week coming out of the Sherry Beasley campaign. She's the Democratic nominee that she hauled in a lot of cash. She said that her campaign raised over $7.42 million in the second quarter of this year, and that was the biggest second quarter in North Carolina history. Now, we haven't heard from the Bud campaign. The reports are actually due to be publicized this Friday. Okay, the time you're listening to this podcast, we should be getting some Bud numbers. Now, we do know this. Senate leader Mitch McConnell has committed close to $30 million to North Carolina. And we have not heard a peep out of the Democratic Senatorial Committee on what they are doing. In the meantime... It is noticeable that Beasley is doing her part and raising a lot of money. So we heard about a resignation this week in the General Assembly. Right. Senator Bob Steinberg will be resigning as of tomorrow or when you're listening to this today. Senator Steinberg was defeated in the Republican primary back in May. Senator Norm Sanderson bested him. Senator Steinberg's up in Dare County. And according to Senator Steinberg, it sounds like he's going to maybe be a lobbyist. It does seem like that. Based on the article, which was from Carolina Journal, they specifically cited that six-month cooling-off period. We know Senator Steinberg was passionate about prison reform. He was a strong advocate for correctional officers in North Carolina. Wonder if that's going to be a part of what he's advocating for. It'll be interesting to see where he lands. Congratulations, Senator Steinberg. Best wishes. And I believe that Representative Bobby Hannig will be taking that seat for the remainder of his term this year. We also got some news this week that Senator Paul Newton has found a new research assistant. We reported a couple weeks ago that Andre Bellevue had transitioned over to the John Locke Foundation. That replacement is Joel Gillison, who currently works for Majority Leader Kathy Harrington. Senator Harrington announced earlier in the year she was not running for re-election, so she is transitioning out. Congratulations to Joel. We look forward to working with you. So this week, we sat down with Speaker Tim Moore's Chief of Staff, Neil Inman. He stopped by the office with a few guests, including a former president. And we had a great discussion about his job and North Carolina politics. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Neil Inman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. To start us off, you are the Speaker's Chief of Staff. Tell us what that looks like on a day-to-day basis. Well, there's really no typical day in the legislature. It could be one day traveling out to a member's district, uh, just visit with them and see what 
uh, the problems that they're facing is the next day it could be negotiating with the governor's office or some other council of state member. Uh, the day after that, it could be making sure the budget gets done on time. There's really no typical day, but uh, mostly it's just managing the flow of information, making sure uh, the speaker and other members of house leadership have the information they need to make the key policy choices that are going to be in front of them for whatever piece of legislation that's moving or not moving. You started off in the General Assembly in an internship role. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, So yeah, 10 years ago, about now actually, I was uh, working for Julia Howard uh, (laughs) as an intern. Uh, Still one of the most intense jobs I've had in the General Assembly. (laughs) Uh, Just working for her and just learning the ropes. She was uh, negotiating a lot of big things at the time. Got to really get to see the workings of the legislature close up and fell in love with it. So uh, after that, I went off to law school immediately afterwards, thought maybe I'd be done with politics and uh, law, uh, kind of something I was more interested in, but ended up finding a way to blend the two and get back into this. Yeah, And she was chair of finance at the time. I mean, 95% of all bills go through her committee, a lot of complicated bills. What, what made you fall in love with it? Um, just being in the room when there were negotiations happening, I think Unemployment reform was really starting at the time. Tax reform was starting to really get rolling. And just getting to hear those conversations and also just, before that I had interned at a think tank and done some just reporting for a student newspaper about politics, but actually seeing how it actually operates and how it's not quite as ideological as people think it is Mm -hmm. and how it's not all just, you know, negative press releases going out back and forth and how much of it's just hard work, getting information, talking to constituents, talking to groups and trying to make the best decision possible. Mm-hmm. So it was just such an interesting place to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always knew I'd want to come back. Do you like finance? Um, hmm. <laughs> it's so complicated, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. I recognize that there's a lot about that I don't understand. And one of the reasons I went to law school was I'm not particularly good at math. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're 32, right? Yes. And you are the youngest chief of staff that the a speaker of the house has ever had so walk us through your life you are a native north carolinian Mm -hmm. tell us about growing up and then how you initially got into politics i know you mentioned think tank like how did you start off in politics um just growing up i was really interested in you know reading about the news i remember 9 11 happening that really just uh, when I was about 10 or 11 years old and just being very you know shocked by that obviously and just wanted to read up on what what's going to happen afterwards, like what, you know, what's going on in the world. And then that led me to just continuing to read and learn about it. And I've always just had a hunger for information to know why things are happening and what's happening and what are people saying about what's going on. And just that constant, just, you know, need for uh, information, I guess, politics is the best place for that to, to happen. So just from there, (laughs) did your parents, were they very political? Did you grow up? Okay. Not political. They're, they're, pretty conservative, uh, but my dad's an engineer. My mom's a former uh, high school English teacher. They're, they vote mm-hmm. in general elections. They voted in primary elections since I've started working in politics, but that's about it. Okay. So you, you grew up in the Wilmington area consuming politics. And I uh, just thought I wanted to be a journalist because I thought, uh, so I started off majoring at that when I went to Campbell University, had written for my high school paper and edited that. But uh just eventually started writing about it more and more during the 2010 elections, got really interested in things. And after that, I kind of decided maybe I'm more interested in 
you know, participating in it or helping the people that are participating in it more than actually writing about it. So uh, from there, the, I got a job at uh, the Civitas Institute, actually, my junior year of college. And from there, uh, working for Representative Hour and, and then law school. You were talking about your day-to-day at the General Assembly. You're also technically the chief of all staff on the House side. What are some regular day-to-day issues that you see come up? Thankfully, I've got a really good administrative team around me, and uh, and we have a really great uh, nonpartisan staff in the General Assembly, but it's just anything from approving LAs, moving, there's constant transition to building. Over 500 people work at the General Assembly, mm-hmm. and uh, about 150 to 170 of those are in the House. Okay. So just approving typical HR matters, nothing too exciting there, but uh, uh, there are a lot of administrative things, like anything from new carpet for a member's office to... Uh, uh, you know, more lengthy policy stuff. So I don't think that people understand how time consuming this job could be. Yeah. And you have a wife and two kids. Yes. Tell us about how you manage like your home work life balance, especially in politics. You may never turn it off. Right. No, and I'm, I'm pretty bad about that. Actually, <laughs> uh, My wife can get on me for that, but, uh, uh, She's great. Uh, she's a, my wife, Hannah is uh, an English teacher. She's taken a couple years off now that we've got two small kids, but we have a three-year-old daughter, Claire, and a one-year-old son, Luke. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it is, you know, member calls you, it's 10 PM, pick up the phone. It's just the job. Uh, 7 AM, pick up the phone. Weekend, pick up the phone, travel if you need to. But I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to make it sound like it's a chore or a task I, I gladly do I, there's no job i'd rather do in the world right now it's a it's a such a unique place to be but um no before i started at the general assembly i it, i transitioned off from uh the mccrory administration and actually two and a half days in the cooper administration uh-huh. <laughs> uh what'd uh, you do for two and a half days in the cooper administration <laughs> after that very lengthy race ended and ended late with how tight the margins were uh, the Cooper administration sent off, and as is their right, I'm not begrudging them this. They, of course, sent out letters to all the senior staff members in the McCory administration. Hey, your services are no longer required. I kept expecting to get that letter, huh. and it never came. So, it, <laughs> <laughs> so there I am, December 31st, like cleaning out my desk and ready to go. You know, ready to start looking for jobs with other Republicans or agencies or law firms, and that just had <laughs> didn't come. So I actually started off the that first couple of days of the Cooper administration. Uh, you know, they came in, I just helped transition some information in before I found something else to do. Uh, I worked at a state agency for a little, for a brief period of time before I went to the general assembly. So I can say I've worked for governors of both parties <laughs> technically <laughs> though, but, uh, no, it was a, it was a good experience and I enjoyed my couple of days with, uh, the, the Cooper team. It just, uh, it's difficult at high level partisan staffing to work for both sides. Neil, how, how do you spend your downtime? What, what do you do <laughs> when you're not consuming politics or maybe it's interrupting what you're doing, but you know, what do you do to kind of decompress? Uh, well, I've got two young kids. Like I okay. talked about earlier, so not a lot of downtime <laughs> at the moment. What I, when I do get a break from here, it is trying to give my, uh, give my wife a break when okay. I can with, with the, with the young kids. And, uh, but I do enjoy, we enjoy traveling, uh, going back to the beach where we're both from, going to the mountains when we can, see my family there as well. So not a, not a ton of downtime period at the okay. moment. Got it. Must slow down, right? When you're out of session, just a tick maybe? Yeah, just a little bit. Although then, you know, depending on 
you would think, but then a lot of the administrative stuff that could pile up, particularly right. during a long session that went till you know February of this year, a lot piles up then. But it's it is a little a little more calm. I get a little more time with my family. So, following up on the family question, mm-hmm. how did you meet your wife? We actually met in high school. Wow. When? Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we're both from Wilmington, North Carolina, and we started dating my senior year of high school, and just stayed together since then. And does she like politics? Uh, she's fairly political not 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 to the extent I am but uh you know we did talk about actually before I took this job you know after the McCory administration was interviewing with some law firms with some other state agencies and then the legislature legislative opportunity popped up and uh, uh with Representative Lewis's office and uh, we sat down and we talked about like you know I kind of anticipated what the hours were going to be like what the what the workload was going to be like and uh you know she was actually great. She actually encouraged me to take that job over some other opportunities that at the time might have been a little more lucrative because she knew that was my passion and uh, was, you know, wanted me to have a job that I enjoyed myself in. And I'm really grateful for that and for all the help on the home front she provides. You have been in the speaker's office for a few years. What mm-hmm. is something that you've worked on that you're really proud of that you have accomplished or your team has accomplished? Personally, one of the, the things I really enjoyed working on was uh, last session. I think I've heard Representative Dahl talk about this uh, bill as well. Uh, There's a big elections reform bill that we did in uh, during the beginning of the COVID pandemic and uh, getting to staff that for uh, and rules chairman, Representative Lewis, Representative Hall, Representative Holly Grange at the time. Uh, and uh, I think Representative Harrison and Representative Dahl were the two primary Democratic members on that. And really, North Carolina is pretty unique. We had some litigation over election rules, but overall, we were able to get a, by, the members were able to get a bipartisan bill together and uh, really headle off a lot of those things. And it had some things that the Republican members wanted and some things that the Democratic members wanted. But it was, I don't know, pretty much, a, I thought, a model of how legislation could actually you know, solve problems was forward thinking. And we really avoided a lot of the controversy that a lot of the rest of the country had, I thought. Can you give us a little peek behind the curtain about how you interact with the Senate? You have a counterpart, uh, Brian Fork. He manages Senator Phil Berger's office. Of course, you're managing Speaker Moore's office. Can you kind of talk about how you engage or how you interact with Brian Fork and trying to get both chambers to move in unison. I know that doesn't happen all the time, but it seems like you guys are the intermediaries. A lot of, like I talked about or alluded to earlier, a lot of the job is administrative matters and being the interface for the speaker's office with central staff and Paul Coble and legislative services office. So there's just a lot of just day-to-day things that Brian and I have to talk with, uh, with, with them and work together on and be in unison on. And we work together uh, very well, I think. Um, uh, just on things like that, but on the rest of you know budget negotiations, that sort of thing. Brian and I are both attorneys. We both work for attorneys, so mm-hmm. uh, we both kind of understand what the job is and making sure we're representing our members' positions well, and you know, just interacting with each other and trying to facilitate their negotiations. Their speakers on the road a lot. Senator Berger's probably the same. So mm-hmm. being able to just deliver the information as quickly as possible, cut to the chase when we're able to, but. Uh, not always possible. Yeah. Well, you talk about the two leaders. They are different in their style. Speaker Moore, high energy. We could look on Facebook today and tomorrow. Chances are he's going to be in two different cities, maybe three different cities. <laughs> he's always going all the time. He's a prolific fundraiser, policy guy. 
he's not going to be outworked by anybody in North right. Carolina politics. Like you said, he's a fantastic fundraiser. He's a tremendous campaigner. Uh, uh, you know, he, he started off in a, in a district that was pretty blue at the time and beat an incumbent uh-huh. Democratic member of leadership at the time. And since then, he's been one of the top fundraisers and campaigners and then the Republican side of the aisle. Um, and you're right, he is very high energy. Uh, he is He loves traveling to members' districts. He uh-huh. loves, uh, you know, being there for them helping them fundraise, helping them accomplish their policy priorities. And uh, the, the speaker on a regular basis says, you know, to members, uh, you know, they can uh, they can fire me, I can't fire them, meaning that they're all individually elected by their constituencies, including him, obviously. Uh, and then they, at the beginning of session, have elected him now to be uh, uh, tied for the longest serving speaker in state history. So he's, uh, he's a, just a tremendous boss to work for. You couldn't ask for anything better. In looking at your team, Folks might think that you think of the GOP and you think of the older white male voter. Uh, I think that's just the image that comes to mind. But your staff is fairly young. It's also young in comparison to the Senate's pro tem staff. What would you say about the staff that you have and maybe the age of folks on your staff? Uh, we do have staff from like a variety of experience levels from, you know, I've got Dan Gurley, my deputy chief of staff, who's, who's actually been a chief of staff for a member of Congress before and Nelson Dollar, who's just recently left our staff. who was a member and a, uh, you know, veteran of the Jim Martin administration. So got that all the way to folks fresh out of, of college. And while that experience is great and we, we need that on our team, I think what makes a good staffer is not necessarily the years or even the degrees. It's a it's a willingness to to learn and to help facilitate what members want. Uh, it's it's in a work ethic basically. If someone's passionate and they've got a work ethic, uh, and they want the members to succeed, uh, then I, you know then you can learn policy. You can't learn a good attitude. And some of the best folks on my team are the, are the youngest, though they have the passion and the really hardworking desire to get things done. Tell me what is your favorite part of your job. I think facilitating those negotiations, being in the room where things happen is, you know, it's, it's just an incredibly unique opportunity. Um, <clears throat> but other other than, you know, the, those high-level negotiations, just helping members where possible either side of the aisle achieve their policy priorities and, you know, whether it's just a local bill or something, you know, something that doesn't seem important to other folks, but getting something across the finish line for, for our members is, you know, gratifying. When we get to the General Assembly, you're there. Mm-hmm. You've already been there. You look like you've already worked a couple hours. When we leave, I we're saying, you know, we're, we usually hang out in the speaker's area, and you're there. <laughs> <laughs> what is a typical day for you like when we're in session? Um, during session, it's mostly talking, one, gathering information from my staff, and I've got a, well, the speaker staff, and I've got a tremendous team around me uh, you know, from tons of experience and, you know, great educations and from a variety of backgrounds who are able to help keep legislation on track and just finding out from them, okay, what's happened with this bill? What's happening with this negotiation? Is this conference report ready to vote? Working with the rules office as well. They've got a tremendous team with under Chairman Hall uh, to, you know, what is ready for for coming to put on the floor today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just finding out that information, then talking to members, seeing what, what other things need to be pushed forward. Uh, and just then talking to central staff, making sure that everything's on track. Uh, so it's mostly just information gathering and then placing that before the speaker and other members of leadership to make sure that uh, the trains are running on time, basically. Mm-hmm. 
I think folks would think that you or would say that you are an election law expert, constitutional law. That's really kind of your niche. How did you fall into or become so proficient in this area of the law? Um, It was a policy area I was interested in in undergrad, uh, just elections in general, just how they work mechanically is is something that's just fun to learn about, I thought. Uh, You know, it's democracy in action. Uh, from there, uh, working for Chairman Lewis's office, who was, uh, when he was here, was one of the, the top leaders on election law, uh, getting to really see that and meet the, the um, then staff at the State Board of Elections um, was a great experience as well. Had some interaction with that in uh, the McCrory administration as well as uh, when I was in his general counsel team. We had a lot of litigation over election law. Um, but then I really got a great chance to learn in 2018, it came off uh, staff here at the General Assembly and went to the State Republican Party where I managed the election day operations for uh, that cycle and just got to see that how it works on the ground you know it's one thing to work you know help a member with legislation but then actually get to experience how it works in practice you know with the State Board of Elections is an entirely different animal so um, and you really get an appreciation for the folks on the ground running the day-to-day of an election your county level state level it's a important task and uh, really a ton of great professionals are doing that from both parties and no party. I want to talk a little bit about your work at Civitas early in your career while you were still in college. Civitas being a think tank, they're putting out these ideas of how government should work. What was your learning curve going from a think tank that is pushing policies that they want the General Assembly to enact to actually having to be the guy in the room representing your boss and your caucus and making policies work? The vast majority of legislation that goes through is not particularly ideological or even like political or partisan in in nature. Um, Most votes in the General Assembly are unanimous or near unanimous. There may be differences between the chamber on a particular issue, but um, so yeah, just you know, learning that not everything is political in that mm-hmm. sense. Uh, every not everything's partisan, and not saying the think tanks obviously don't all think that. But I was an intern coming in; I didn't expect mm-hmm. that. Uh, but learning that um, and just you know, getting my hands dirty and, and legislation and helping members with that was was an eye-opening experience um, for sure. Who in the political world do you kind of look to as your North Star on politics? Who do you identify with? Trying to get an idea of who Neil Inman is politically, if you, if you haven't guessed that already. Gotcha. Uh, well, this is going to sound like a cop-out, but it's not. Uh, Tim Moore. I really try to I've learned this and internalize this. and I, You learn this in law school a lot. Uh, but, you know, it's not really, I'm not, I haven't been elected to anything. So right. I have my personal political views. Obviously, anyone who works in politics is, but... Nobody, I didn't, you know, I've heard one other lobbyist say this before. I didn't go out and eat the barbecue. I didn't go uh, out and, although actually, you know, I have <laughs> campaigned quite a hell. You, know, do, you do help, but I, I didn't put my name on it. I didn't sure. expose myself to that kind of scrutiny. Yeah. So uh, I work for politicians that I believe in and, and uh, agree with uh, as much as I can. Uh, and I'm honored to do that with uh, Speaker Moore. But um, I really do think it's important to staff that we kind of minimize our own personal views as much as possible and really just put our efforts into getting things across the finish line for the elected official you work for. And if you're not really capable of that, you're not working in the right field. Speaking of the speaker, what do you think is the biggest misconception that the average North Carolinian has about the speaker? Um, I guess going back to something I said earlier that, uh, you know, everything about politics is partisan, but he's got great relationships uh, across the aisle. He 
you know, very close with a lot of Democratic members as well. Um, he's been in he's been in office for nearly 20 years now, so I see him interact with uh, members on the other side of the aisle all the time, and uh, he really does, uh, you know, do whatever he can to help, obviously Republican members, but also Democratic members when he can, and how just nonpartisan a lot of the job is as uh, mm-hmm. a speaker or a speaker chief of staff, and how it's mostly just trying to help the state and individual members. You're very active on Twitter. The <laughs> NCGA folks are all pretty active on Twitter, but I would say that that is uncommon for a chief of staff. Can you talk about like what you think the future of politics and social media is and maybe how it's impacted the way we look at our politics? Um, I mean, Twitter and, poli- and social media in general is, you know, I think most folks who work in it would agree. It's just, it's, it's an incredible source of real-time information about what's going on from just what's happening at a committee oftentimes it's easier for me to pull up a, a you know a hashtag and, and see what's happening in committee than it is to go listen to the mm-hmm. committee you can't do that all the time so right. uh really great for multitasking it's great for message amplification um you know there, it can be abused i mean i don't I, I try to avoid getting in twitter fights or anything like that i think it can be uh it could be a net negative particularly as a staff member it's not really my role to fight people <laughs> but uh uh uh, it, it can be a way for to get the, the message across from a, from an office for a member for uh, for a particular point of view, or if you're working on a campaign, obviously interesting. Although Twitter is not where voters really are. Twitter is more journalists. Twitter is uh, media leads. Facebook is a little more useful, but you know, not neither of them are really real life, as they say. You know, they're they're useful for keeping track of information, seeing what journalists, campaign operatives are saying, but not where voters are. And I think folks on either side of the aisle that mistake it for the voice of the people are going to do themselves a disservice. If you had a magic wand and you could fix one thing in politics, what would it be? I wish we could have a little more trust both on, you know, just between the members of the public, between just in, just in politics in general. I think it would be helpful if people, everyone recognize that most people are working from a place of good faith and are just trying to get what they think is the best thing to, uh, in the interest of the state done. So I, no, I don't know that always happens, but it'd be good. Well, Neil Inman, Chief of Staff to Speaker Tim Moore, we appreciate all you do in North Carolina, all you do for the General Assembly. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks, guys. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. It really is impressive that he is so young and has risen so quickly at the General Assembly and legislators really respect him. I was so impressed that he started just a decade ago as an intern. Makes you think about all the interns we see down there, including our interns, and you wonder what their future is. Are they going to be in that corner office in the room where it happens? What a great story. Tweet Tweet of of the the week. week. This week's tweet of the week comes from the North Carolina Museum of History. They are at NC Museum History, and they've been getting a little bit 
more fun on their social media. Their TikTok account is really interesting, talking about how to say different North Carolina counties and towns. But this particular tweet says, tell us the most North Carolina thing about you. Now, I would recommend going to this thread and just seeing what people put. But they had a lot of engagement and The first one that I see says, I drank Sundrop while we went to visit the James Polk house when I was in sixth grade. And then there's a bunch saying Cheerwine is my blood type, a lot about barbecue. And then I saw one that says, I go to cookout, get the cookout tray and a Cheerwine float. So (laughs) what I would ask you, Brian Lewis, you're a native North Carolinian. Uh What is the most North Carolina thing about you? So my wife and I live in the suburbs of Cary, North Carolina. Some people call Cary the containment area for relocated Yankees. That is somewhat accurate because I think Julie and I are two of the only native North Carolinians in our neighborhood. So this is very North Carolina. When it's time for me to get a haircut, my wife gives me a haircut and she does it in the front yard and... (laughs) We set up a kitchen chair out there. She gets the clippers. We run an extension cord and she cuts my hair right there. And people, they walk by, they stare like, what in the world is going on? So after the haircut, she takes the leaf blower and she blows all the excess hair off of me, off the chair and off the sidewalk. And then we go inside. Is that North Carolina or is that just redneck? (laughs) Probably is. And then the second thing I'd say, number two is we take our refuse, like watermelon rinds, cantaloupe rinds, banana peels, and we just chuck it into our backyard. We have this leafy area where grass doesn't grow. It's just a lot of trees in our backyard. So it's it's not uncommon to see from our back porch us chucking a watermelon carcass into the yard that's very north carolina why throw it away why take up that trash space just chuck it in the backyard and let mother nature do with it what it needs to do and you're also obsessed with andy griffith i know all the episodes front and back i can tell you within 10 seconds of the show coming on i can tell you what the episode is what the plot is but i absolutely love the andy griffith show similar to your carrie story someone tweeted in this thread and said my family moved here 27 years ago and everyone in town still calls us the northerners (laughs) (laughs) all right so you have been here i believe long enough where you know you're a north carolinian now i've been here nine years yeah You're a North Carolinian. What is the most North Carolina thing about you? I think maybe the most North Carolina thing about me is that I'm one of the tons of people that have moved here in the last (laughs) 10 years. I don't know. (laughs) That might be true. This doesn't make me North Carolinian per se, but the reason that I moved out here my first time, my parents love telling this story. I came out here for a leadership camp when I was in seventh grade. So I came by myself. Also, I was a loser. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) I came out here and actually went to Belmont Abbey College, which is where the leadership camp was. And then we went to South Carolina. So you saw North Carolina and South Carolina. And I went home and I was like, I love North Carolina. I'm going to move there when I'm older. And now I live here. You said that in the seventh grade. Yes. 
tell me about this leadership conference <laughs> you you were part of. What was that? It was just for like it was like a convention of every like nerdy junior high kid in America. We all came out here. But my mom also tells the story that our closest airport is really Indianapolis and it takes two and a half, three hours to get home from there. So they took me there. We had a little incident at security, but they dropped me off, right? And by the time I landed in Charlotte, they weren't home yet. And I had taken like a travel cell phone at the time. It wasn't my cell phone, but it was my parents. So they only had the home phone. So I call her home phone. Again, I'm like, what, 12, 13. I call and I leave them a voicemail that says, hey, I made it to Charlotte. I don't see who I'm looking for, but I'm sure I will. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) So that was on the answering machine when they got home. And that was all they'd heard from me. (laughs) That's funny. So we're one week into being back from vacation. You came in yesterday. You were ready to get your life together. Tell us how that's going. (laughs) All right. So I have this idea. If you were to look at my desk upstairs, if you were to look at my desktop on my computer, if you were to look at my desktop on where I do editing of video and audio, it sends you into a full anxiety attack. It does. It gives me a lot of anxiety and the other day when we were at the beach you got out your desktop monitor to edit the podcast and your wife saw it too and julie was like ah what is that (laughs) so it's not just me (laughs) it is a mess and i have been trying this week to dedicate time every day to cleaning up all three because it's a mess and you know the end of session just things you just make piles. You make piles on your desktop. You make piles on the desk. It's a full-time job. Just just staying organized. I will give you some credit here. You are more of like the creative up here person. Mm. Oh, she's waving <laughs> above her head for those of you who can't see this. <laughs> Which is all of you actually. <laughs> yeah. But I'm getting it done and hopefully I will have everything in order By the time they arrive on July 26th, I think they're going to do something July 26th. I don't know, but if whether they are or not, Sky, I'm going to be more organized and things will be in folders and you won't have anxiety attacks. But here's the question. What are you working on now that we're out of session? Um, We're doing check-ins with our clients. Mm -hmm. I take on more of a legal caseload when we're not in session. Those sorts of things. I need to clean my filing cabinets. I have two of them. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of folks ask us, because I think there's this presumption that life just gets really easy after session adjourns. That is not necessarily the case. Session is when your prepared work comes to fruition. Mm -hmm. But in the off session is when you prepare said work. Absolutely. So we're looking at a long session that will begin mid-January. And it is time to evaluate what happened in the short session and to plan for the long session. Because if you wait until January, you are really going to be a tick behind. And that's all for this week, folks. We will talk to you next Friday. And as I've said the last few weeks, if you have something you want us to talk about in the off session, we are happy to do that. So send us a DM, text us. You know how to get in contact with us. Our numbers are all over the internet. So (laughs) let us know if you'd like to hear us discuss something or there's someone you want to hear from. Thanks for listening. 
And until next week, please remember to do politics better. Uh, I tell you, that, that interview was great. He is a great speaker, a great wordsmith, probably the best boss in America. <laughs> now you know why we call him the boy wonder. <laughs> Give that boy some crayons he could draw. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. We appreciate you stopping by. Thanks for having me.